This is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life around the world. For this episode, I interviewed Jeffrey Allen Miller, an English professor at Montclair State University in New Jersey. He made a major discovery in 2015. Looking at a notebook in an archive at the University of Cambridge, Miller came across the earliest known draft of any part of the King James Bible. For this discovery, along with his other scholarship on John Milton, he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship this year, which is commonly referred to as a genius grant in America. So let's go to Jeffrey Allen Miller's office and hear what he has to say. I'm here today in the office of Professor Jeffrey Allen Miller, and I want to talk to him today about, we won't bury the lead here, about <laughs> a discovery, some discoveries he has made which have has earned him uh, one of the most prestigious prize for academics and creative people in, in our country called the MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, it's sometimes called the Genius Award. Um, it comes with you know honor and prestige and money. My name is Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I'm a composer and a performer. I guess more than anything, what, what this fellowship is, is it's such a huge um, vote of confidence and allows me to, to, to keep going. I want to hear the backstory, uh, Jeff, about how, what did you find that earned you this, uh, this honor? Um, well, so, I mean, earned is a tricky word. I'm not sure <laughs> I did um, earn it, uh, but at least uh, the reason they say it was um, very kindly uh, awarded to me. I think, you know, the, the most um, uh, prominent thing that I identified or discovered was what is now the earliest known draft of any part of the King James Bible. Um, so I found um, or identified. We already knew that this particular manuscript um, existed, but it had been cataloged as being something different than what it turned out to be. Um, and it is um, an early, seemingly first draft of a part of the King James translation, which was first published in 1611. Um, it is the earliest known draft of any part of the translation at this point. We uh, There were a few other drafts of the King James Bible that had been previously identified, but they all belong to later stages in the composition process after a great deal of work on the translation had already been done. The other thing that's really interesting about this draft that I identified um, is it is the only um, draft of the King James translation yet to be identified that is definitively in the hand of one of the known translators of of the King James Bible. Um, so it's written in the hand of a man named Samuel Ward. We know it's his yeah. hand. Um, and so it uh, provides a real rare, unique uh, opportunity to see one of the translators of one of these this most important works um, ever produced in any language, really, um, working out what will become portions of the King James Bible seemingly for the first time by hand in this draft. So it's a really unique document. Well, tell us how, we'll come back to Samuel Ward in a moment, but tell us how he and others were, you know, doing the translation, the teamwork aspect here, the organizational dynamics, which are kind of interesting. Right. So the uh, King James Bible was uh, first commissioned by um, the newly ascended James I in 1604. Uh, and uh, it was initially divided into six teams or companies of translators, um, together totaling around 50 men. Two teams were based in Oxford two based in Cambridge, and two based in Westminster, what we would just call Greater London um, today. Um, and each of these teams, each, each team consisting around seven to eight people, um, was assigned a particular segment of the Bible. So team one, say in Westminster, was assigned Genesis through, I think, um, um, second 
um, Kings maybe or something like that. Um, and then you know this t- um, the team that Samuel Ward um, was a part of was assigned um, the Old Testament Apocrypha and things like that. So they each of these teams uh, were assigned different portions of the Bible, uh, and they were then initially just basically said to. Um, produce a revised version of a previous English translation known as the Bishop's Bible. Um, So rather than the King James Bible being um, supposed to have been an entirely new translation composed afresh from scratch, so to speak, it was uh, to to be explicitly a revision of this previous English translation known as the Bishop's Bible. Um, So that was how it was structured. That was what these these groups of translators were supposed to be doing. And then there was a second part of the project after all these translators had each team had produced a a kind of draft of its portion of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Those drafts were passed on up the chain and two members from each of the translation companies then met together in London on a kind of super committee um, to revise the work into a a kind of whole. Um, One of the things that's interesting about what Ward's draft shows is that the King James Bible, precisely because rather than assigning individual people to individual books, rather assigning teams of people to teams, to groups of books, um, this was a departure from the way that previous English translations of the Bible seemed to have been done. I mean, the King James Bible is often, I mean, it, this is seen um, sometimes to have been a kind of a key to its success, a key to its greatness. It's been called a miracle of committee work and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Ward's draft shows is that at least one of the teams of translators, at least in part, didn't do it quite this way <laughs> that they were supposed to be doing. It seems like Ward's company, he was a member of the so-called second Uh, Cambridge company, so the second team in Cambridge, it seems like his company did at least initially begin the process by assigning individual books or parts of books to individual translators, which is actually not something that they were supposed to be doing. Um, But once you realize that that is in fact what at least one of the companies was doing and maybe others in different ways, um, certain parts of the King James translation that have previously um, not made a ton of sense suddenly do and start to snap into focus a little bit. So that's one of the things that Ward's draft shows rather interestingly is that the king, it, it changes a little bit um, how we have traditionally assumed the translation of the King James Bible must have been conducted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wonder if organizational theory management, <laughs> people will want to, MBA type, you know, researchers will want to uh, study that as well as uh, literary and philology. Well, I mean, it is one of the it is one of the interesting things that you know. There's always a temptation um, to presume over much continuity with the past. I mean, there are times you know there these people are doing they're different people in different ways and they're doing approaching things maybe differently than we might today. Um, but there's a reverse temptation of over alienating the past and assuming that all these people back then must have been wholly unlike us in different ways. And actually one of the things you find is that that's very much not the case. So at, in Ward's draft, there's evidence um, to show or suggest at least strongly that at least one of the people involved in Ward's company um, seems to have basically just fallen down on the job or just not done his assigned <laughs> portion of the task, and that Ward and others seem to have been brought in later to help finish a portion of the translation that another committee member was supposed to have done but then didn't. Um, so that kind of thing where you break up into small groups and different people go at it like gangbusters and different people just shirk the responsibility altogether <laughs> and different people sort of find sort of some you know find some sort of middle ground. That's one of the things actually you see happening in the King James Bible itself. Um, so in that sense it is very much um, a story sort of straight out of the minutes of any organizational meeting that might have been taking place today. 
Yeah, you wonder if King James ever would have brought in McKinsey to do a 360 degree, <laughs> right. you know, performance right. review process. To well, see, he, he seems you know. to have brought in, you know, different um, high ranking officials that do at various points um, uh, seem uh, to have uh, been uh, brought in to effectively, you know, apply the stick at various places, you know, let's finish this up or to take the measure of the situation. I um, mean, at one point when all the, after the 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 towards the end of the committee phase, or what will prove to be the, the company or team phase, the earliest part of the translation. Yeah. Um, it seems like James I basically runs out of patience and says, you know, okay, we're moving on to step two, whether we're ready or not. And this order seems to have caught a number of the companies by surprise. Hmm. Like, oh no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Now, you know, so, you know, I mean, a lot of burning the midnight oil or something on the back end. And you can different sort of find places, even in Ward's draft and in later drafts that sort of suggest... Um, that some parts might have been kind of rushed <laughs> yeah, and others yeah. not. And so in that sense, yeah, he actually, um, you know, not quite McKinsey, but he does, you know, the, the different ways. There are people whose job seems to be to kind of just oversee the whole thing and make mm -hmm. sure it's um, um, pr uh, moving forward in the way that James at least wants it to be. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the product they ended up with, the King James Bible, um, you know, what did that do for the English language and the Bible itself for readers who, you know, might not have known that? Mm. What did it do? Well, so, um, you know, the first thing to say is that it basically changes the language. Um, you know, every contribution to the language probably changes it some ways. Um, but I think uh, it's fair to say that the King James Bible, I think, um, shaped the English language um, as much as anything with the possible exception of Shakespeare, ever has. Uh, it also, it became not just, and remains to this day, not just the most widely read English translation of the Bible of all time, um, but it in fact uh, remains the most widely read work of English writing of all time, um, surpassing in that respect at least even the works of Shakespeare. Um, for huge stretches of time in many households, um, both around England um, and throughout the Anglophone world, um, if you had any one book in your household, it would have been, it might have been a King James Bible. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, it became um, something that uh, is sort of the lens through which linguistically and otherwise the Bible came to be known. Um, it became a way, um, uh, sort of the way in which people um, came to think about their own language, um, their own history. Um, the, the way they came to experience English, both native English speakers and non-native English speakers. Um, it has exerted a huge influence, sometimes not always um, to great effect, um, mm -hmm. uh, on what um, people often assume great English writing should mm -hmm. sound like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think mm -hmm. that um, it's really, um, it's hard to even... Um, it'd probably be easier to try to come up with a list of things the King James Bible has not um, shaped in some yeah. way than it would be to come up with a list of the things that it has yeah. um, because that list seems virtually endless. Right. I think the same was true of Martin Luther in Germany. Mm. I can't remember the, what exact year in relation to the King James Bible. But when so he... It's around 100 years earlier is when uh, um, Luther um, uh, nail, supposedly nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, um, and, and his and, Bible, didn't, uh, as I understood, helped codify German language. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and also um, that impulse to translate that, um, you know, at the time, you know, the kind of motive Protestant 
uh, impulse to translate the Bible into uh, vernacular languages um, exerted a huge influence itself on the King James Bible. They're, they're looking at German vernacular Bibles. They're looking um, at vernacular Bibles in other languages. Um, they're looking at um, uh, versions of the Bible in Hebrew and Greek um, and Aramaic. And, and so uh, Latin, obviously, um, the learned language of the day. And so um, that also absolutely shaped, um, you know, is another sort of thing that the King James Bible is itself indebted to, and that it then serves to pass on not just its own legacy, um, but um, the legacy of other um, pr uh, prior translators as well, both in English and otherwise. And then actually, after, in the wake of the King James Bible's publication, um, uh, the, in the Netherlands, they're interested then in producing a Dutch uh, version, a new Dutch version of the Bible, and uh, the King James Bible, the composition of the King James Bible at the Synod of Dort is one of the things that is suggested as a potential model for mm. this undertaking. Um, so the King James Bible um, is, a, is a part of a, a more global story in that respect, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, listeners, uh, you know, in the U.S. anyways, in English, I know we still have a King James version of the Bible. Mm. And then you have like new NIV, New International Version or NAB. Right. And so could you comment on... Um, those translations now and how King James Bible sort of influences or holds up in that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, different people have different perspectives on sort of how it um, uh, holds up in relation yeah, yeah, to those yeah. other <laughs> right. translator, translations. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the King James Bible is that the King James Bible, the King James translation continues to change after its first publication in 1611. Mm -hmm. um, so what um, readers say in the 1800s in or the 1900s will come to think of as the King James translation is a translation that in a sense only gets locked into place, I think sometime in the 1700s, mm -hmm. if not late, late 1700s, I think. Um, so the, there's a process of change that is, the, the King James translation is itself being revised, sometimes by um, a people who were involved in the original translation mm -hmm. of it. Samuel Ward is reported to have been yeah. um, involved in um, a later edition of mm -hmm. the King James translation. Um, but then, um, so even, you know, the King James translation itself goes on to change throughout time. Eventually, mm -hmm. it, it gets locked sort of into place. And we now, that is what becomes what we tend to think of as the King James translation of the Bible. And it is, it's, you know, not wholly dissimilar or very like the one that is first published um, in 1611, though not identical in every way. Then there are lots of um, later translations, uh, many of them. Excellent. You know, one of the things that is often said about these translations um, is that they tend to um, uh, build a lot on um, cutting edge, uh, more recent scholarship and scholarly mm -hmm. understanding mm -hmm. of um, the uh, ancient um, texts of the Bible that stand behind the King James translation. Um, and so in that sense, um, a lot of those translations are in various ways better, more mm -hmm. accurate than the King James Bible, at least viewed one way, right? So you could argue that the King James Bible in various places misunderstands okay. some underlying Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek word or the context of something that lies, stands behind of the text that they're translating. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, as any one who's tried to translate anything will tell you, um, accuracy is a hugely important part, yeah. um, especially if you're translating a religious text uh, yeah. But uh, it's not the entire um, part of one's job. Um, and I think that uh, even translations that might be 
have proven to be more accurate, have also often proven to be less beloved. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting part of the story of the King James Bible as well, yeah. that sort of some that sometimes certain translations get so kind of lodged in the cultural memory or something that even if they're a kind of mistranslation, it becomes hard to change them. It won't sound right to people <laughs> at yeah. that point. Yeah. And so you'll be listening now to Dr. Peter Ruckman in a message on the importance of the King James Version of the Bible. How does someone like you get interested in this as a topic? Is mm. it And is it purely academic, um, you know, uh, to spend one's life looking into these mm. historic texts, especially in the Christ, Christian world texts? Mm. But how did, how did that um, spark for you? You know, I mean, it's in some ways, yes, it is. Um, it's not purely academic, but it's very academic. It's a very mm. sort of academic. I think these are um, extremely rich um, texts and issues uh, to explore from an academic perspective, as I try to do. You know, I'm an English professor. I'm not a minister or something. Yeah. Um, um, uh, that being said, uh, you know, I was raised in um, a religious household, though not a doctrinaire religious household. My mom is Catholic. My dad is Baptist. I grew up going to um, both um, uh, forms of church service. Uh, I then... my. Uh, my grandfather was a Baptist Sunday school teacher. My dad was also a Baptist Sunday school teacher. They both taught out of the King James Bible. So I grew up around the King James Bible. I grew up around religion in general. Um, religion was something that was certainly taken very seriously in my household and was taken mm -hmm. seriously um, on an intellectual or academic level too. Not solely as something intellectually or academically important and rewarding, um, but also not as something um, that one should be um, loath to consider from intellect from an intellectual or academic perspective. So it was always a, a huge part of um, who I was and what I was then sort of myself became interested in. I then went to a Jesuit high school, um, though I'm not Catholic, uh, that um, I found that um, interest, that academic interest cultivated all the more again at a place that very much seemed to consider um, religious questions as um, worthwhile and important things to consider intellectually. And I think from mm -hmm. that point forward, it's hard for me to remember a time when I wasn't really interested in the intersection between literature, history, and religion or theology. Mm -hmm. um, and um, certainly almost every one of my favorite works of literature, the things that I've always gravitated towards, whether it's Milton or the King James Bible or um, Flannery O'Connor or Marilyn Robinson or Dostoevsky yeah. or Herman Melville, um, yeah. are things yeah. where um, um, religion or theological questions uh, are treated um, with great seriousness, great urgency, great intensity. And I've always um, really find myself gravitating uh, to those um, kinds of works intellectually, academically, and I think it would be silly to pretend that has nothing to do with personally my background, where I came from. You were not looking, apparently, for the King James uh, Bible discovery that you ended up finding, right? What, what, what were you looking for? No, so I definitely wasn't looking for um, this early draft of the King James Bible, in part because uh, not only did we not know that this particular um, modern scholarship did not know that this particular document existed. In a sense, it's a kind of draft that a certain understanding of how the King James Bible uh, 
was assumed to have been conducted, it's a kind of draft that in a sense should not have existed mm -hmm. at all. So you wouldn't right. have even sort of thought to look for it, even if you right. hoped to um, find something like it. Um, the way it came about was that I was asked in 2011 um, at the, what was at the time the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible's initial publication, I was asked by a great um, intellectual historian at Caltech named Mordecai Feingold um, to write an essay about Samuel Ward, one of the known translators of the King James Bible, and that I had done a little bit of um, work on Samuel Ward um, in connection in the past, in connection with an essay about Milton that I wrote. Ward was the master of a college next door to Milton's at Cambridge when mm. Milton was a student there. And uh, so I'd done some work on Ward in the past, and one of the things that I think um, uh, Professor Feingold was interested in exploring in this volume of essays was, so we have these 50 men, uh, around 50 men, who were asked to be translators of the King James Bible, and went on to be translators of it. Uh, in a few cases, it's very obvious why that person was asked. They have a very high-ranking um, office in the Church of England, or they're the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Cambridge, something like that. Um, but in a lot of the cases, it's still a little bit unclear why you ever would have asked that particular person at that time uh, to work on something like this. Mm -hmm. um, and relatedly, well, what was that person doing? What other sorts of stuff had that person been doing and did they go on to do in the wake of their having been involved in the composition of the King James Bible? Ward is one of these people who's always been a slight mystery how he gets put on to it. Um, he's one of the youngest people selected to be one of the translators of the King James Bible. So I was asked to um, really go and um, ultimately write an essay thinking about what sorts of other things um, was Samuel Ward up to mm -hmm. at, at, or in and around this time. Um, so I, I knew that a bunch of his uh, papers and miscellaneous manuscripts survived in the archives of Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, mm -hmm. the college that he had gone on to be the master of. Uh, and so I was really just going there trying to kind of look at everything that was there and see what I could gather about um, what Samuel Ward was doing around this time. What were his interests like? What was he reading? Mm -hmm. um, what other things might he have been writing? Um, very early on, I found a draft of a letter that Samuel Ward wrote to someone um, concerning a portion of the Bible that he, I knew he had been involved in translating um, as a King James translator. And he was it was written around either just when he would have been finishing or just after he would have been involved in the project. Um, so I thought that that was actually going to be my great discovery. And I found that very early on. And in fact, I wrote a whole draft of my own essay, basically kind of all about <laughs> this letter. Um, and it was actually on a subsequent research trip. I, I There were a couple documents that I, I hadn't um, looked at myself mm. yet. And I wanted, I, I, I kind of out of a completist strain or something, <laughs> I wanted to know in for my own um, sake, that I had looked at everything. Yeah. So I, it was on one of these um, kind of just mopping up research trips where I called up uh, a manuscript identified now as MS Ward B. Um, and it was in that manuscript, uh, in that manuscript notebook that I, that um, there turned out to reside um, an early draft of part of the King James Bible in Samuel Ward's hand. So that meant that then my, this essay that I'd already spent a lot of time writing had to go in the bin and I had to rewrite the whole wow. thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. no, so I wasn't, um, I wasn't up until um, the day I laid eyes on it. I very much wasn't looking for anything like it. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a happy surprise on a variety of levels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's like Indiana Jones for literary <laughs> scholars, right? Sort of, yeah. Like right, you know, um, although, you know, it's one of those things that maybe a little bit, uh, I know sometimes archivists, um, obviously, you know, any, anytime someone wants to compare me to 
Harrison Ford. Like, <laughs> you know, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would say, you know, sometimes archivists rightly kind of bridle at the, it's kind of the Indiana Jones yeah. um, comparison, yeah. in part because I think it gives the public an impression that these manuscripts are sort of languishing, right. neglected in some sort of cave that you then yeah. spelunk yeah. down into. To find, um, where yeah. in fact, actually, the story of how this came to be identified is a story um, that relies on and builds upon the work of generations of scholars, archivists, librarians who cataloged these manuscripts, helped ensure their survival um, into the present. And so yeah. in that sense, um, you know, I don't identify what this is, if not for two people just right off the bat. One is an archivist named Nicholas Rogers, who's the archivist at Sydney Sussex, and he's there the whole time. Um, you know, when you request a specific manuscript, he goes and takes care of it. He makes sure he brings it out to you. He'll help you in any way you want to uh, or any way you need. He's an incredibly generous, and knowledgeable person. Wow. It's also the case that the only reason I even knew this manuscript was there in a broad sense, that there was a manuscript called MS Ward B, it had been cataloged as containing an unknown biblical commentary on an unknown biblical book. But um, even the fact, but that was really useful information. Like it yeah. turned out to be not quite what it was. Yeah. Um, but um, that catalog had been put together um, in the 80s by a really brilliant intellectual historian now at Penn named Margot Todd. Hmm. Um, and, you know, without Todd's catalog, I don't know that manuscript is there wow. to call it up and then look at it and look look at it more closely and figure out what it really is in a sense. And so in that sense... Um, you know, it's a little bit different from the kind of Indiana Jones sort of yes, discovery, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a discovery that relied upon mm -hmm. um, centuries worth of prior discoveries and prior work by archivists, librarians, scholars, yeah. teachers um, to sort of pave the way for this identification. And without all of those steps along the way over the course of 400 years, it would have not been identified. Right. And I wonder, I mean, for listeners... Okay, if, if if you open the Samuel Ward book, uh, the type of English we're looking at is not what a normal person could mm. probably understand, right? I don't mm. know how many people in the world can actually mm. sort of read that text and figure out what it actually was. It is a um, challenge. What, what was that? What was it like? I mean, what is it Old English? Um, so it's it's written in um you know not Old English in the sense of mm -hmm. classic you know Old English being like what Beowulf yeah is written okay. in it sort of sounds sort of Scandinavian Germanic, uh -huh. um so it's written in early modern English the mm -hmm. um uh, parts of it are you know the English of the King James Bible the English of Shakespeare the English of Milton in some sense I'm always telling my students you know that's not Old English that's Modern English, that's your English, yeah. right? You know, you speak Shakespeare's English and he speaks mm -hmm. your English in a sense and you speak his English because he spoke your English and vice yeah. versa, right? Uh -huh. um, and the same thing is true of the King James Bible and Milton. Um, it is the case, though, that... Um, so it's written in the hand... Samuel Ward... It's written in Samuel Ward's handwriting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Samuel Ward's handwriting was known to be bad at the time. So even by the time's own standards, he had bad handwriting. Um, it's also case that early modern, what we would call early modern cursive or script, um, some of the letters look very different um, than modern English mm -hmm. cursive or script. Um, so that makes it, um, you're sort of reading someone um, with bad handwriting, writing a kind of a form of English that at least at the visual level um, may not align in in every way with mm -hmm. what you would identify as English script. Um, it's also the case that a huge amount of the draft is 
exists in other languages besides English. So one of the texts that Ward um, is involved in working, um, working out the translation of um, is a text that survived in Greek. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, he will, the draft takes more or less the form throughout of, he'll quote a bit from the Bishop's Bible that he thinks he, he wants to query or that he thinks could stand some revision. He'll quote that bit from the Bishop's Bible. He'll then quote the underlying Greek text that the Bishop's Bible itself was trying to translate or should have been trying to translate. Yeah. And then he'll propose his own English translation. Mm -hmm. And then he'll um, sometimes then sort of add thoughts to himself in Latin. So yeah, one of the things yeah. that's very clear is that Ward thinks to himself in Latin in mm. the process of even conduct or trying to compose this English translation. Wow. And then there's um, um, bits of Hebrew that are interjected in the draft throughout as well. So this mm. is a draft that exists in four languages, Greek, Hebrew, um, Latin, and English. Uh, so even if you can read Ward's English handwriting, which is hard, that is still only getting you kind of a quarter of the way there. Um, the yeah. manuscript has actually been fully digitized online. So if people want to go and look and just get a mm. visual, um, this is what it looks like. You can find it um, if you just um, Google um, MS Ward B, Sydney, Sussex, yeah. Cambridge, you'll find it. Um, uh, Cambridge's uh, University Library Digital Archives has digitized the whole thing. Oh. And I've written an in a little um, introduction for it with some hyperlinks to some um, representative pages. Um, so people can kind of navigate it on a visual level. But that's one of the things that I'm hoping this edition of the King James Bot, the, the, this yeah. edition of that draft. Yeah, where, where is this leading? Like, you know, is there a revival of, of Samuel Ward's mm. life and works? Um, mm. And where where has this find out? Where is it leading you in terms mm. of output? Um, yeah, so one of the things, I mean, I you know, I, I hope there's a revival of interest in Samuel <laughs> yeah. Ward. I don't know. That may be sort of utopian. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I find him certainly very interesting. Uh, that might be sort of a, a team of one or two or three or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, he, uh, one of the things that I'm doing is trying to produce a, a complete um, critical edition and study of this early draft of part of the King James Bible. So one of the things that that will do um, will um, transcribe the entirety of the thing. So if you don't, if you can't read Ward's handwriting, which is uh, a, it can be <laughs> tough. Strong likelihood, yeah. yeah, it can be tough even for specialists. Certainly <laughs> for non-specialists. Um, you know, I've shown it to specialists who have a hard time with it. Yeah. Um, uh, and these are people whose job it is not to have a hard time with it, right? In the yeah, sense, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it'll have a full transcription of everything, so you'll be able to sort of see exactly what is being said at every moment. Uh, the edition will also then translate all the bits that are not in English, um, so though you'll be able to then read those as well, even if you don't know Latin or Greek or Hebrew. Um, then they'll have a kind of running commentary throughout, as well as a very full introduction, um, helping the reader see exactly what uh, Ward is trying to do at any given moment. Mm. Um, uh, at least what he thinks he's trying to do. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and then trying to help the reader see then how this early draft of the King James Bible gave rise and portions of it still exist and what will become the first published edition of the King James Bible in 1611. Wow. So trying to sort of help um, the reader see how we go from this draft um, to the King James Bible in its eventual published form. Yeah, um, so that's yeah. definitely a main, a big project that I'm working on at the time. Well, and I hear you're you've not gotten away from Milton, that Milton has been an abiding research interest. No, very much, yeah. I, I, uh, Milton, I still, I often say he's you know, the beating heart of everything I do, uh, and mm. I still feel that way. Mm. Um, I love Milton. Um, and I'm really interested in early modern literature, theology, and history more broadly. So early what do we modern... miss on Milton from a, like a, 
theology or uh, Christian history standpoint? Well, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I, you know, what we miss, I, I, you know, different people miss different things, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, one of the things I think that certainly I'm very interested in showing in a lot of the research that I'm doing um, is Milton um, is a very um, radical thinker. Um, that's something that people have often long known mm-hmm. about Milton. Um, one of the things I'm interested in showing is that not, Mil- not Milton is not just a radical thinker in the sense of um, thinking very heterodox ideas, but he's also a radical thinker in the sense that he's um, open to rethinking ideas, um, certain ideas constantly. He changes his mind about things throughout the course of his career, which is not something that a kind of prior generation of scholarship concerning Milton often wanted to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Milton himself likes to present himself as having always been the person he would become from the very beginning. Mm. Um, And I think that when you actually look into it, however much Milton might have wanted to think that about himself, uh, that's clearly not the way it worked for him, and it's probably not the way it works for anyone. Um, So I'm really interested in thinking about the ways that Milton um, changes his mind about even very um, important theological issues that he took very seriously. Um, and then I'm especially interested in thinking about the way that um, the writing process itself, so the process of composing the works uh, that Milton uh, devoted his life to composing, how that process itself served to shape or exerted a transformative influence on these changes of ideas on mm-hmm. his part. So rather than thinking, if Milton did change his idea, there's a kind of tradition of scholarship that's tended to want to then locate the engine of that change in, say, Milton's reading or Milton's social interactions. You know, who, what must he have read to give him this idea? Who must he have known or you know been chatting with in the street or in the pub to give him this idea? Hmm. Um, and certainly, my work is not trying to suggest that those things are that you're barking up the wrong tree thinking about that. Milton's reading, Milton's social interactions are very much clearly shaping his ideas. Uh, but one of the things I'm trying to show is that Milton's writing process itself is also shaping his own ideas. In a sense, Milton is thinking through writing and at various points in time, writing his way into certain beliefs mm-hmm. that when he sat down to write a work, um, he may not even himself have anticipated coming to uphold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, I think the MacArthur notation about your award said he, you... Uh, he he held a Christian view of history unfolding according to God's plan that and that mattered in his composition and his poetry and prose. Mm. Is so one of the things that um, it's the subject of my first book, um, which feels like it's been in progress for uh. a thousand years. <laughs> Basically, yeah, this yeah. is the term of my natural life. Uh, uh, but hopefully, uh, nearing completion. Um, I'm really interested in the way that um, uh, Milton's belief in what would come to be known as um, theological typology. Um, not only shaped his works, but that becomes a, a, a lin- shaped his and other of his contemporaries' works very powerfully and controversially, um, but that it becomes yeah. a lens for thinking about the way um, uh, that the writing process more broadly could ex- exert this shaping influence. Um, what theological or early modern typology was, fundamentally, um, was the belief that various persons... Um, things or events in the past, usually in the time of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, had actually been put on earth by God to be types, um, drawing on a locution um, in the Greek um, of uh, uh, the Apostle Paul's, certain Mm -hmm. of the Apostle Paul's epistles, um, had been types or prefigurations or foreshadowings of certain persons, things, and events to come, um, usually in the time of Jesus of Nazareth and the New Testament. So the idea being um, that King David had literally been put on earth as a kind of embodied sign from God 
that the coming of a greater king in the mm-hmm. future um in the form of Jesus of Nazareth would yeah. arrive right or so that right. when Moses lit, holds up a bronze or brazen serpent affixed to a pole um that is itself a kind of embodied prophecy mm-hmm. that of the crucifixion mm-hmm. yeah, later okay, on right, right. um and so it's this belief that there are basically these kind of embodied prophecies or types mm-hmm. in the past that are prefiguring things to come in the future mm-hmm. or that at least things to come in what was the future at one point it may now still may now also be the past mm-hmm. um uh, it's that's an idea that milton took it can seem a little bit nutty um it's an idea that milton took extremely seriously mm-hmm. um a lot of uh, milton's contemporaries also took it very seriously um and ex- exerted a really interesting controversial at times volatile pull um uh, on their work. So one of the things I'm interested in showing is that in the process of writing about typology, Milton and some of his contemporaries will often sort of spin out in unpredictable directions. And that mm-hmm. then helps to show how that how typology itself played a role in shaping certain developments, um, but also the way that um, the process of writing about typology and then the writing process kind of more broadly also played a role in shaping those developments. And that's mm-hmm. really what the book is trying to show in the aggregate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we look at research data from a week or two ago that showed, you know, America's becoming in some sense less religious, mm. especially younger generations. Mm. And we look at the humanities and we see challenges in sort of those of us who work at liberal arts colleges or teach humanities related subjects. Um, and so I'm just curious about your thoughts on as someone who teaches, you know, mm. students here, are there consequences if we, for those trends? Mm. And is there any, should we worry about those trends? Um, you know, I, I, there are a couple of things I would say about that. Um, one thing is, um, since you mentioned our students, um, I should take the time to <laughs> yeah. plug. I, I teach at yeah. Montclair State. We have the best students in the world. Um, so mm. um, prospective students or any parents um, <laughs> yeah. that might be listening, um, please uh, do... Um, uh, reach out to us or uh, consider us. Uh, we'd love to have you here. Um, and I think we have a lot to offer here. Um, in terms of uh, how concerned uh, one should be about those trends, uh, certainly as someone who takes religion seriously um, and thinks that it, um, it it can be a force for good, um, though even if I, I certainly concede that it's, it hasn't always been right. um, uh, into yeah. the present, uh, and certainly as someone who's devoted his life uh, to humanities research uh, and um, thinks that that is also a force for good and something very important in the world. Uh, you know, there's certainly a way of looking at those trends and uh, having it make one feel sort of quite bleak about things. Um, you know, and I would say that, you know, those who I think history has shown time and again, I think... Um, uh, almost on any metric, you know, news today would show you um, that uh, humanities research, humanities knowledge, humanities learning, um, humanity students who major in humanities disciplines um, go on to play a really important, sought-after role um, in um, global communities, mm-hmm. um, and that is true both on a kind of professional level. Um, study after study shows uh, that the kinds of skills and the sort of thinking and expertise that is inculcated in um, uh, English departments, history departments, religion departments, um, these philosophy departments, uh, these are the kinds of skills that employers want. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's also the kinds of um, the people who um, the sorts of the way of thinking, the habits of mind that emerge out of those disciplines are the kinds of things that um, citizens and societies more broadly um, 
should want to have um, mm -hmm. more of, not fewer of. Uh, so in that sense, um, you know, anytime there's a sort of trend um, downward and uh, the extent to which um, society or a given society values uh, certain things, uh, it can seem alarming. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who spends a lot of his time um, studying the 1500s and 1600s, um, one of the things I'm comforted by routinely is the fact that um, there were many times um, in those periods uh, where people were quite convinced that something like the world was ending mm -hmm. uh, and that all was all was lost or was soon mm -hmm. to be lost. That has never proven true yet. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, humanities, um, literature, uh, culture, these are remarkably resilient things. Um, mm -hmm. The King James Bible, Milton, Shakespeare, um, you know, they've made it through a lot. Uh, yeah. And I think um, they both made it through a lot in their own lives. Um, and they've made it through a lot of history between now and then. I don't think that means we can rest on our laurels and assume that a hundred years, people will still be reading and teaching and wanting to think about Paradise Lost or the King James Bible. Um, but I also think that actually, if you're a betting person, mm -hmm. the better bet is the assumption that actually they will be. Um, and mm -hmm. one of the things that I hope to do is just serve some sort of meager part in trying to ensure that that's the case. And that in a hundred years, when people are studying those things, um, as I believe they will be, and as I certainly hope they will be, um, that um, we have a, a, maybe a greater understanding of them in certain ways than we do today. And if I can sort of um, help sort of further that mission in one way or another, um, I think it'll be a life well spent. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. Special thanks to Melissa Harrison and Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag. <laughs> <laughs>